right, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski and uh, have a very, very special guest on today. We have ESPN's Keith Law, author Keith Law, just general great guy, Keith Law. Keith, welcome. Thank you. You're very welcome. I'm very excited to have you on the show. I have to say, last time I had you on the podcast, which is probably about five, six years ago. It's been a long uh, time, yeah. Too it long. has been a long time. Too long, way too long. Uh, but we did that because you were in town, so you actually did it at that's right. Uh, that's right at my house. And my at favorite part of that is castle, the Paz Castle. Uh, I, I like that. I'm using that. There you go. Um, the, my favorite part about that whole thing is obviously everybody knows my technical uh, frailties. <laughs> I had you standing like too far away from the microphone, that's right. so so it sounded like I'd be like, "Hey, Keith, so what do you think about this?" And you'd right. be like, I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah. "You know, Keith, it was Keith is actually in a closet. People turning it up, turning it down. It's just crazy. So I'm, yep. I'm glad we got this thing worked out. Yes, um, you sound. We're going to talk about." A- you you do too. You sound really good. Excellent. Uh, lots to talk about. We're going to talk a lot about uh, your new book, Smart Baseball, which is fantastic. Thank I don't you. need I don't need to tell you that, but but it is. No, you should is, tell me that as often I, as you want. Actually, I, I will tell you that as often, especially the first couple of weeks uh, that it's out when you're doing ten jillion radio interviews. Oh my god! Yes. Yeah, and I'm kind yeah. of an introvert, so this is not like this is a little intimidating. I saw the schedule from the. Oh, it's Harper Collins. It is unbelievable. Like yeah. there are really that many radio stations in America, huh? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know, that. and I'm on all of them. Okay, okay, excellent. Good, good, good to know. Thank you. Good job. Yes, I'm going I, to go like have a drink. Yeah, yeah. I think I did for the last one for so for Secret of Golf. I think I did like 80 interviews in three days. Oh, I think gosh. it was 80 or something like that. And uh, you know, you think like, oh, this is kind of funny at first, and after a while, you're like. Oh, I'm going crazy. Yeah. I'm literally losing my mind. So I'll just prepare you in advance. I'll ask you <laughs> I'll ask you two of the questions that they will ask you. Um, one is, how did you come up with the idea for this book? So that's a big one. Yes. That's a big one because you don't have to read the book to know that one. Right. And then my, my favorite one, and you, I'm not joking when I say that you, you should have a prepared answer for this. Uh-huh. Uh, is there anything in your research that surprised you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a big one. You're going to get the surprise question quite often, yeah. so so it'll be good. But tell us tell tell us a little bit about the book. I, I I could do it myself, but I want you to to tell us a little bit about the book. Okay, yeah. And the first question is actually one with a very specific answer, which is that readers asked me for a recommendation. People who follow me on social media know I also just read a lot, sure. and so they'd say, you know, I think they were thinking, you're a reader, you cover baseball, you cover the stats. You know, they would say, what is there a book I can read to learn about? New stats, sabermetrics. Yeah. Oh, I see you argue that RBIs are useless. I kind of get it, but where where can I read more about that? And there was never a book written for the wide audience that was very sort of math free or very light on math that you know that was just doesn't matter what your background is, you can understand. Hey, these stats not so good. These stats that are still pretty common, much better. And by yeah. the way, now teams are getting even more advanced into this. And that was the that was the original pitch. The book you have in your hands is very close in outline, at least, to what I pitched Harper Collins on eighteen months ago. Yeah, we you know we tweaked. You've been through the process. You know what that's like. But I actually thought the outline was just you know that's just how you sell the book, right? And then the finished book is going to look nothing like it. And then at the end, I was like, oh god, no, that's actually eighty <laughs> percent of the chapters are are exactly as I thought they were, as I, was, or I thought they were going to be. And um, the biggest thing in the editing process turned out to be the stitching together, because really yeah. what I filed was a collection of essays. There's not a, I'm not following one person, so it's not a single narrative throughout. And so I had to have somebody, you know, I, you know, me, I write the write. I write my columns for ESPN. They're done. Like leave me alone. It's done. It was perfect when I sent it to you. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no <laughs> mistakes. Uh, no, it's Larry Bernandez. That's his name. Absolutely. So in this one was, you know, the, obviously there's a back and forth through edits, but also just the idea of creating additional content to get from one chapter to another to make sure I'm referring back to the correct things later in the book so that it's somewhat cohesive for something that, again, really does break down to a collection of essays. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question you can read this book anywhere. You can pick yeah. it up in the middle. You can pick it up at the end, wherever, whatever chapter happens to interest you. I mean, it does read that way, but there is a cohesiveness to it. I mean, you definitely take it from beginning to end. And, and I think that's 
that's very interesting about, you know, not really changing. I think different books are different ways. I, when I wrote The Machine, mm-hmm. uh, it was pretty much the the outline I sent was pretty much the outline of the book. I mean, it was a, a you know, a look at the year. But when I wrote, you know, uh, Secret of Golf, I mean, it was very different. I mean, obviously, you know, there was there were things. And the book I'm doing now, I'm writing about Harry Houdini, uh, is completely different. I mean, like the the thing, the outline I send is is all but useless. So it's <laughs> it's interesting how how the process, you know, depending on what you find out and all that. But but what I think this one shows is that you had a clarity of vision of what you were trying to do when you started. That's what I hoped. I, I had a it was didactic in intent. Hopefully, it doesn't read too didactically. But I wanted to teach. I wanted to approach yeah. this as look, I've lived this stuff now for 15, 16 years. I really don't do, I've never been the one doing a lot of original research. There were little things I would do when I was at ESPN. I've, uh, uh, sorry, when I was at the Blue Jays that, um, you know, they're trivial in the sort of grand scheme of sabermetrics, but mostly what I've done is kept up with the industry and then tried to be the one who could translate that stuff into something that anyone can understand. You don't have to, I have a bit of a math background, but you don't have to have one. You shouldn't have to have one to understand baseball statistics, baseball analytics, just to think differently about players. Let's approach this as a philosophical question more than as a mathematical question. And I'll put some of the math in the footnotes for those of you who are curious, and I'll recommend other books if or papers if people want to follow up on that. But my sense was the average reader doesn't – the average baseball fan doesn't want too much of the detail, but they just want to understand, hey, why – Theo and Jed, why why are why'd they do that? I want to know yeah. – just generally, philosophically, well, why are they doing X and not Y? Why'd they sign that player? They all want to know why they signed Jason Hayward. All right, maybe it's not working out so great, but I can at least explain what the thinking was. If I can teach you to understand different ways of thinking, then I've accomplished what I wanted in the book. The way you do it is, I mean, it really is sort of split up uh, into three three general sections. Mm-hmm. The first section is, is essentially, uh, if I'm getting it right um, – it's a, it's a section where you you break down it as something that I love to do also break down the old stats yep. and why why they why they blind the why they're blind I mean they're mm-hmm. not you know and one thing people say all the time is like well they're not useless it's like well no but that's not how you judge things I mean like every you, you can always like you you can watch a movie you know with one eye closed if you want mm-hmm. um, but but they're you know so you really break it down and that's obviously a big big thing for me. Uh, what is your biggest sort of statistical pet peeve? Uh, the save, because it's fundamentally altered. I mean, the, the we use the word ruined in the subtitle. Not some of that's marketing speak, but <laughs> it's true. It has uh, fundamentally altered the way that the game is played, yes. managed, the way yes. rosters are assembled. Paid. Paid Financially, a huge absolutely. factor in arbitration and in free agency. You want to get at pace of play stuff, the way that we manage bullpens, manage relievers, the death of the long reliever, or, or at least maybe he might be coming back to life now, Lazarus-like, but for a long time, there was simply no such thing as a deliberate long reliever on the staff. And that all comes back to the fact that a sports writer just <laughs> fabricated this stat. It, this is There's nothing organic about this. Look, you can argue, you know, an at-bat. Somebody had to sit down and name the at-bat, but it's very easy to see. Well, that's that's like a fundamental unit of baseball. Like you right. get that. Whereas the save is, especially if you look at the, you actually sit down and read the save rule. The balk rule is probably worse. The save <laughs> rule is up there, though. It's pretty bad. Let's just take three things, two things that are sort of like each other, but are very arbitrarily defined. And oh, by the way, here's this other thing that's like you're just – it's not even the same species or genus. We're just going right to like <laughs> the uh, archaea and just bringing one of those species over here, putting it in the same group because why not? Like it that – even as a kid, I could look at the third save, third part of the save rule, the three innings of if- effective pitching. Right. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> Nobody knows. No, and if it's anything – and errors get like this too. If you're going to be that subjective, well, then the data is polluted. You can't right. – I can't do anything. You can use that to your point about it's not useless. These stats – most of these bad stats are merely accounting. They tell you something that happened according to some rules for determining what happened. They're useless for – Valuing past performance or thinking about yes. future performance, and those are the two things that matter if you work in baseball. You don't really care about the accounting stuff uh, unless it's going to affect how much you have to pay the player. But you care right. what was that worth and what's he likely to be worth next year. 
Yeah. I mean, I've called them, I call them judgmental stats. That's sort of the, yeah. the, the phrase I use. And, uh, you know, I just did a big piece also on the save, um, inspired by you. And, you know, there were three different save rules in mm-hmm. baseball. The first one uh, essentially meant if you finish the game, you, you got to save. Right. If you finish the game that you were winning, uh, and then there was like one other way to get it, like if you face the tying run or something. Um, and then the second rule was like if you face the tying run and there was some other rule, but but neither one of those rules – if you actually allowed the tying run on base, then you got to save. I mean, that was like one of those. <laughs> and, and then this third yeah, rule. What do we do? Well, and at some point, if you have three rules that don't work, right? Don't you just say, "Well, this is not a stat that's useful at right. all. Don't don't have it. Let's not have that." Right. Instead, they just kept changing it. No, it's no. We're just just one little tweak, and that's how you end up with like a tax code that's twelve hundred pages long. Like. You know, maybe at some point you should just just sort of strip it down and start over. In the case of the save, do we need a stat for that? We have no. game, you can record who finished a game. Certainly, that's very neutral, objective. I'm a big fan of that, uh, of anything that's that's uh, that lacks that subjective component. But the idea that we have to glorify this specific type of ninth inning pitching never worked for me even before I was in the industry. And once I got in the industry and realized, like, this is actually hurting us. It's hurting everything we said, how you pay players, how you use players, how you build a bullpen has been fundamentally altered by the save stat. Well, and I think it's fundamentally changed the way players look at themselves, right? I mean, you can have a – what would Mariano Rivera have been if the save rule said that you had to pitch two innings to get a save? I ask that question all the time. If that was the rule, he would have pitched two innings. And all those guys would have pitched two innings, and it would have been a completely different thing. And we'd still be saying it's subjective, but it's subjective in a much much broader way. And so, yeah, I mean, that to me is fascinating. It's fascinating that a statistic that a sports writer came up with because he was mad uh, about a win-loss record, basically, of a reliever – that that could not just fundamentally change how we watch baseball, which is interesting in and of itself, but how the game is played and managed and paid for and all those things that you were talking about, that's really, really interesting and and speaks to something that I think, you know, Theo Epstein said, uh, and I agree with him, baseball people are constantly looking for something like they can hold on to, like something that's firm and 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 like they can grab on and say, hey, that guy had 30 saves last year. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just something, you know, it's such a, you're just in this sea sort of bouncing back and forth and here's something like there's dry land. It might be, you know, there might be uninhabited, pointless right. dry land, but it is dry land. Yes, and that's, uh, you know, the good part of that is that's what's driven a lot of the analytics revolution that's been going on now for 10 plus years and this the whole i mean i i don't know what the exact genesis of the stack cast idea was within baseball but i can tell you how people are looking at it now is here's this new and i have a chapter devoted to it in the book it's here's this whole new set of things we can grab onto and uh that is more data than any of these teams have ever had before by a factor of probably a hundred. Yeah. We're gonna learn a lot of new things. But in the meantime, let's let's sort of latch on to hey, this guy's I keep bringing up the Seth Lugo uh example, the Mets pitcher. He's got an extremely high spin rate on a curveball he almost never throws. Right. And so we think that's good, right? I tell you, this guy's curveball's got an unbelievably high spin rate. That's real. I think that's good, right? That sounds yeah. really good. Sounds like I can't. Well, I couldn't hit anything, but it sounds like I, I'd be even less likely to hit that. We don't actually know that yet, and it may be proven in time that that's true. But we are definitely jumping to this conclusion now that sure. super high spin rate curveballs are are better. And I will say, when I went to New York and sat with all those Statcast guys, I met I met Tango. He's a real person. Oh, he's a real human actual person, not a cyborg. Oh, yeah. No, a real person. Um. <laughs> And uh, talked to them about that. And they showed me some of their. They got, they've got a lot of stuff that hasn't even gotten quite to the public yet, just because they need a, a you know better forum for it. But you know the idea that okay, really high spin rate on a fastball is good. So is really low spin rate, as it turns out. It's worse to be average, and that to me was kind of interesting because it goes against yeah. the way that when we've scouted players, it's always been you know above average is good, below average is bad. There's nowhere where it's good to be below average, but turns out if you have a low spin fastball, it is better than just being average. Especially the worst thing to be with a fastball is average velo, average spin. 
that's pretty terrible, actually, relative to all many of the other combinations you can be. It's really interesting. I mean, the, the Statcast stuff is is I'm fascinating. I, I'm doing <laughs> something now on sprint speed, and you know, there's oh, yeah. just so many things that they can they can grab hold on. But here's what's interesting to me uh, about about you specifically, uh, because I've sat at, at games with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a scout at heart. I mean, you definitely are. Uh, you know, there's at least a big part of you. Uh, not a trouble with the curve scout. No. A, a, an actual. I urinate just fine. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Not 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 the, the sort of cliche of a scout, but yeah. I mean, you you love watching the game and breaking things down within the game. Uh, and I think one of the sort of telling questions of the book, and I don't know that it's resolved, but is where where does scouting fit into all of this? You know, there's yep. so much coming and so much data. Where does scouting fit in? It's it's fascinating. It's not resolved in the book because I, th- I mean it's not resolved in reality. No, it's and not I, resolved. I see teams that are uh, changing the way they use amateur scouts and essentially hiring guys without experience and basically saying, you know, go out with the video camera and film these guys and write down velocities and keep track of things that we're not getting data for, like swings and misses by pitch type for an amateur pitcher. Look, that's useful information. I would want to know that too. Does does he never get swings and misses on his fastball against high school competition? That's definitely good to know. But I also think there's tremendous value in taking advantage of essentially the the memories and the thought patterns of a scout who's been out 15, 20 years and seen hundreds of players and then can watch a player and see that long set of variables that is – you know, that any single player encompasses his swing mechanics, his play discipline, his athleticism, his size. I mean, there's so many things that go into it. He can look and say, this guy reminds me of here's right. three players, five players who, you know, and here's what they ended up becoming. Oh, that swing, you know, that swing that reminds me of so-and-so. He never could hit the fastball in on his hands. Like, There's absolutely a spot for that. I would, you know, personally, if I were running a scouting department or running an entire team, I'd still make the same or more investments in scouting, but I'd change how they yeah. use those guys because there are some things like I don't need you to tell me he's got tight rotation on his curveball because right. now I can prove that. Well, but my question is this, and and this is – you will get a, a hugely different uh, response to this, as you know, all around baseball. Mm-hmm. There are other things that scouts look at, you know, your, your energy, your seeming attitude on the field. Obviously, yep. those things can fool you. But those things can also matter, right? I mean, yes. that it's that's that's stuff that it seems to me that's you know there are so many things wrong with the with the movie Trouble with the Curve, but <laughs> but but to me that was the big one. The big one was like, look, if you're going to celebrate scouts as yep. the book movie is supposed to do, then celebrate that part of it that 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 scouts can get to know the players, can get to understand them, can ask their friends, can 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 talk to people about their attitude. Are, are they, do they come, are they high energy every day? I really do believe that a big reason that teams didn't quite get on Mike Trout is they didn't fully appreciate uh, some of that stuff. You know, some of that stuff that is not easily quantifiable uh, and not easily, you know, just turned into a scouting report. And the, the one of many things that movie screwed up a huge part of amateur scouting is the home visit. If you're an area yeah. scout and you're going to turn a player in, even if you're going to turn a player in with a pretty lukewarm report, you will still try to schedule a home visit to go sit with the player and maybe one or both of his parents and get to know him a little bit. Right. And that's, I mean, I hear so many stories of, you know, that some, some are as simple as the kid's a moron. I mean, I just don't think we can coach him. <laughs> I heard a story this spring of a high school pitcher whose his breaking ball had gotten worse from when scouts saw him last year to when scouts saw him this year. And one of the scouts tried to ask him about that, and the kid got super defensive. What do you mean? It's nothing wrong with my curveball. I mean, that's wow. to me an enormous red flag. Yes. He's a guy who – a scout who pitched professionally for a long time is saying to you, I think something's off with your curveball. And the scout – I mean, phrased it – you know, a scout asks this – can ask that question very specifically. Can you, did sure. you change your grip? You change your release point. There's a lot of different things you could ask, and the kid didn't want to hear it. And to me, that is an enormous red flag for me. Yeah. And the same by the same token, you get that kid who's who's asking, turns around and asks questions. Well, what? You, show me how you threw that. You, what, what was your pitch? You know, these kids a lot of times don't know the big leaguers of 20 years ago. But hey, you oh, you threw a changeup. Show me how you did that. I mean, when a kid yeah. when a kid is inquisitive, is curious, like I don't care if he's polite. 
I always say like Sean Markham, we drafted him when I was at the Blue Jays, uh, third round, and the scout um, Ty Nichols was his name. He's still a scout out in the Midwest, and he just loved the kids' competitiveness. Super aggressive. He was a shortstop and closer in college, <laughs> and when we got him in the system, it's like we kind of realized he's not a nice guy. Like I wouldn't go <laughs> hang out with this guy, but between the lines, he was exactly what you wanted. Yes. So there is a certain type of makeup that you have to recognize. You have to be able to set aside. I wouldn't go get a beer with this guy, but, but, but what he does on the mound is exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the, one of the things that's very, very difficult is, especially when you're doing amateur scouting, you, as you, as you spend so much time doing, uh, mm-hmm. is obviously you're projecting so far out in advance. I mean, you know, years and years in advance for most of these guys. And those years are not empty years. They're years where right. they are spent struggling in the minor leagues on no money. I mean, you know, a lot of the high-end guys will get the, the signing money, but a lot of them, no money. Uh, they're they're away from home for the first time in their lives. They are in a a... An environment where people are speaking different languages, come from different cultures. Uh, you're in a little town. I mean, it's it is a life experience, and there's no question some people are going to handle that better than others. Absolutely. And, and absolutely, that's a huge part of this thing, isn't it? Yes, maturity. It, first of all, maturity is huge for the day we sign you, right? We want you to right. have the maturity to we're going to take you away from home. We're going to hand you probably a big pile of cash that you've never seen before. We're sure. going to treat you like an adult. You're physically maybe an adult, but your brain certainly isn't there, and you don't have the life of experience of an adult. And But also maturity is uh, can be altered. And so I've definitely – I've seen kids. I've talked to kids who in high school were, were clearly immature in different ways too. It doesn't mean acting like a baby. It can mean – very shy, um, you know, lacking confidence. And then you see the kid three, four years later, and he's become a different person, whether it's because he went pro and spent time in pro ball. Like imagine going from, you grew up in Orange County, California, and we send you to the Appalachian League. That's a bit of a shock. But also it could just be that uh, you could go to college. And again, the first time you're on your own, you're in somewhat of a protected environment, but you're not home. Mom's not doing your laundry necessarily. So that's a big change. And that can To me, that's a huge challenge for scouts, too, is to say, I don't like the maturity now, but to recognize he may be a very different person in three years. And it's hard to ask a scout to project on a kid's emotional maturity, but to recognize, this is a guy I would take, but he needs to grow up versus this is a guy who needs to grow up. And for that reason, I would not take him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, these are... These are the difficult decisions of, of trying to project that far out in advance. Okay, I want to talk bunting with you. Obviously, that's a big part of the book <laughs> and, and a big part of our life. But first, I want to give you the full opportunity to rip Michael Shore. Since he has done that <laughs> on the podcast, he has ripped you. Yes. Of course, I have too, but we both have. <laughs> uh, but but feel free. Feel free. to you, you and Michael go way back. Yes, we do. Um, it's funny because it started when he – on Fire Joe Morgan, uh, when he he and Alan and Dave were still writing anonymously, pseudonymously, uh, sure. wrote something criticizing me for basically for saying Barry Zito was gonna was a terrible free agent sign. And <laughs> don't I regret that an one, email. By the way. Oh yeah, don't think I'm ever letting them forget what they said. <laughs> and so I dropped them an email like, eh, you know, it's funny, but it's you know, sort of pointing out something that. I'd said, and they revealed that we'd all got, we all went to the same college, different times. <laughs> I think Mike and I might have overlapped by a year. And so that was kind of, I mean, that was before they'd even gone public with who they were. Right. And then, um, but now Mike and I are uh, diametrically opposed on the question of pi. Pi, huge, and, uh, huge yes, pi. By which I mean that I am right and he is wrong. That pie is right. delicious, and I'm speaking specifically of fruit pies, where we right. where we make the fruit hot. And surround it in a crust of butter with just enough flour to hold the butter together. Like yes. This to me is heaven on earth. Like when, when at some point I get the diagnosis, Keith, you're going to die in six months. Doesn't what you doesn't matter what you do. I'm eating pie three meals a day. Three meals and, a day, and for dessert after each meal <laughs> until I go. Because once you tell me there's no, if there were no consequence to eating pie, then I would eat pie all the time. I would just right. get up every day, make a pie. What are you doing, hon? I'm making dinner. This is dinner. Yes, it's cherry pie for dinner tonight. Yeah, I, 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 the hot fruit thing. I, I, you know, we've we've been over it. We've been round and round. He's un-American, really. It's well, I think he is un-American. I mean, I think that's given. Um, (laughs) 
but uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I'm I'm going to pass along yet again the pie thing, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sad. All right, let's let's talk bunting. Yeah. Um, I, I thought about this, you know, I I'd, I'd read the bunting chapter, uh, I think just before, and I was watching Kyle Schwarber uh, lay down that bunt yesterday, which is beautiful. Uh, was beautiful. Laid yeah. down the bunt against the shift. And I was thinking that this has perfectly clarified my position on bunting, which is always bunt against the shift. Yes. If, if with nobody on base, always do it every single time and never bunt to get an out ever. Yeah. That's, that's, that's basically it. And so there's, look, if that's, if you got a manager who's dumb as a post and you just need to make it real <laughs> simple, that's a good way to put it. Like that would be fine. Yeah, you yeah. can probably I would hope that your average manager can handle a little more nuance than that, right. which I would say also. And I hint at this in the book, although this becomes a mathematical rabbit hole. I did not want to take people down. There's a little more to it than that. I talk oh, in terms sure of I talk in terms of run expectancy because I think it's a great concept to introduce to readers who've never seen it. But it's also true. I hint at this like when Miguel Cabrera was playing third base, a sack bunt. Might have gotten you on base, too. So yeah, you were bunting right. for an out, but there was a chance you'd end up on base. And so make sure you consider that. There's always more to it. And, you know, the skill of the bunter, the pitcher, you know, if John Lester's on the mound, that's a little different than, you know, when a Greg Maddox or a Mark Burley, this unbelievable sure. field. Really, how the pitcher lands. Is he landing square to the plate so that he's ready to go field something? Should affect your decision of whether or not to bunt because it affects the probability of you actually bunting for an out and then not making an out. So right. in the chapter, I focus very much on the simple decision of, all right, if the bunt succeeds, air quotes, and you make the out, are you actually worse off than you were before? That's the number one thing that people have to consider that, I mean, if you saw ESPN posted that excerpt the other day and I was getting flamed uh, and called horrible <laughs> things on Twitter because, and called un-American, by the way, or accused of not liking baseball, always my favorite, especially oh, when I'm one. like, I'm at a high school game in, you know, EBF somewhere and, <laughs> and, you know, which is fine if he's good, but I've been to plenty of those where it's like, I can't believe I, I got on a plane for this. And then, and seeing that, it's, dude, if I don't like baseball, I am in the wrong effing line of work here. <laughs> But, you know, the, the, what a lot of people don't – they don't want to – it's not that much math. It's not that much thinking. Just walk through the argument with me. If you get to the end and you still want to take the other side, that's fine. But at least hear me out because I think it's a pretty good logical case against the standard bunt for an out. I'm going to bunt this right at someone, make an out at first base, and advance one or two runners. That one to me is nearly always a negative ROI play. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's almost always a bad play yep. when your entire goal, as most sacrifice bunts are, is to concede the out. Yeah, I think any time you throw in the possibility of getting a base runner, um, you know, beating out the bunt or yep. or you you know, bunting against the shift. Says, you just said it. That's a perfect. Well, that's right. Always bunt against the perfect, shift. Always bunt against the shift. I yep. mean, that's it's it's constant. Bill James says, yeah, the number one thing he thinks about with bunting is the quality of the defense yep. at third base. Like how good a how how well can that guy field? Yep. Um, but those are interesting questions that never seem nobody when people say, hey, I love the sacrifice bunt, mm -hmm. or I believe in it, or a small ball. They are saying that if you told them before the at-bat, hey, guy's coming up, he's bunting, he doesn't even have to do it. I'm giving you second base for the guy on first, and I'm, I'm giving him an out. They would take it. They right. would take that. Most, you know, and that, right. most, most people would. Yep. And that's horrifying. Right. <laughs> that's really it, – it seems innumerate to me, the way that, that people defend that. No, 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 you're getting – you're putting the – you're getting the guy into scoring position. Well, we, we only <laughs> somebody had to make that term up. You're in scoring position on first base. The right. old joke is certain hitters were in scoring position in the batter's box. Like that's I can, right. you can still score from first. Like that that that's possible. And this whole idea, but they're wrapped up in a lot. I mean, a lot of this is the language of the game. The idea of the save and the proven closer and the clutch sure. hitter, which I go after in the myths chapter. I mean, that's. We heard all this stuff growing up. I'm 43, so I grew up, you know, as a baseball fan, pre any sabermetrics. It existed. It was on the fringes. I didn't know who right. Bill James was until I got to college. So, sure. you know, that 
I grew up with all that stuff. I heard all that stuff on TV. Oh, you know what? That kid, yeah, he just came up. He's hitting 400. He's still in that honeymoon period. They're only throwing him fastballs. That's, <laughs> that is some bull. Can I curse on the podcast? That's some bull right there. Like, But, you know, you hear it all the way growing up as a kid, and you think, oh, yeah, sure. I'm sure that's exactly how it is. And eventually someone has to – I don't know. I think I got to a certain age and the skepticism gene just turned on. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, that all sounds wrong. Like how, yeah. that's too easy an explanation for what turns out to be a lot. There's a lot of randomness in baseball and, and well, I'm okay with that. You know, you don't have to hate that. No, you don't have to hate it. Look, there's a lot of randomness in baseball. Yeah, uh, There are cliches in baseball that just are easy fallbacks. And also we've been told the story of the game. And I mean this in the best of ways. Because, uh, you know, I think some of the great, uh, you know, announcers of people I've learned the game from are people that played the game. But we've learned the game generally growing up, certainly in our uh, time, from former players. And former players, uh, for all the great things and insights that they give, which they do give incredible insights, they also bring huge biases with them. Mm -hmm. And one of those biases is that it's about heart, it's about uh, leadership, it's about clutch hitting, and that and that sacrificing a guy from first to second base is like that's teamwork. You know what I mean? I mean that's yeah. that's where it comes from, <laughs> and and that's why you will never see a guy as celebrated in the in the clubhouse as you will when a guy bunts a guy over. Oh, that's well, like you go to college shoot. games. I don't know how much you you end up going to like college or high school games, but the, everyone's spilling out of the dugout. He made an out. What are you doing? <laughs> You should all be giving him the silent treatment. He just made it out. You're less likely to score now. And it's like – I mean the false hustle of that bothers me to begin with of the, the whole, hey, every everything everybody did, let's all spill out of the dugout. Like come on. But <laughs> he made an out. That's, hey, you had one job. Don't get out. And he just did it on purpose. That makes me absolutely nuts. You want to, look, the coach told him to bunt. He bunted. I understand that it may not have been his decision, but can we right. not make such a big deal about that? <laughs> it's a big deal when the guy scores, and you're more likely to get him to score in most situations if you didn't give up the out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll tell you which one I really can't stand: the bunt from second to third. Oh I God, really yes. That. Oh, I really hate yes. that play. I just really, really hate that play. I mean, that is such an obvious loss. I and mean, I guess if you were trying to. It's the worst, I and think, you're trying on, to score on the one table. run again. Yeah, ninth inning or whatever. You're trying to score one run. Maybe. Even then, though. I mean, everybody has it in their mind. Okay, you bunt a guy over to second, and then a single scores. scores him. Or you bunt a guy to third and a sack fly. Guys don't get sack flies every time they come to the plate. No. And then and you can't suddenly just, it's two outs. You can't just do that on a whim, right? Even the, right. Even the exactly. guys who do hit the ball in the air – We'll still get on top of the ball. The one that kills me, though, is, all right, we're in extra innings, leadoff double, bunt him to third, intentional oh. walk, intentional walk. <laughs> all right, and, okay, and then there's a foul, and he gets two shots, and I've by that point, I'm in the kitchen. I'm like, I'm just yeah. going to go get a beer or something. <laughs> like, this is not and, – and it's all – it's like it's too much stupid then. And what I, I maliciously enjoy then is – is the, it's the, the man on third now, intentional walk, intentional walk, unintentional walk, and exactly you just force right. the run in because you did that. Like Exactly. Good. That's what you deserve. <laughs> the only problem is you're rewarding the guy for bunting, so I don't I like know, that part. I right? know, right? You know, but somebody's got to somebody, somebody's, take more pleasure the two intentional walks are, are worse. The two intentional walks are worse. Yeah, no question. Yes. No that's, question. The, put it, deliberately loading the bases makes me crazy because pitch, pitchers are generally worse from the stretch anyway. And hitters right. tend to hit pretty well with ba with the bases loaded because they better guess that there's going to be a fastball coming. So already you're probably tilting the odds a little further away from you than you think you are. And then on right. top of that, you've got a guy in there who's, unless he's got precise control, he's going to, there's a, a reasonable chance, much more than a zero chance, he's going to walk someone or hit someone, and then you forced in a run, and and you know, nice going there. Well, that's the thing. Guys with precise control walk people too. I mean, yes. it's, it's yep. uh, it drives me nuts. Yes, All right. Or the umpire like does decides that I'm going to make this strike zone the size of my sphincter, and you know, good luck finding it. <laughs> We've seen plenty exactly. of that. Exactly. Yeah. All right. First two weeks of the baseball season. What have you seen? Anything interesting? What 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 have you been interested uh, in? Nothing, nothing means anything. It's all small sample. Come on. You know me better than that. <laughs> I know. Well, no, it's small sample. But it's, something's got to Oh, yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, look, I'm watching Eric Thames, Tim's 
Thames. Oh my it's the gosh. river, right? Thames. He's the River Thames. Thames, yeah. Because this guy was pretty terrible the first time around. <laughs> I mean, he, he was really terrible. Um, and obviously what he's done so far is not particularly meaningful. Like, he's not going to hit 400. He's not going to have 80 home runs this year. But I'm interested. <laughs> like, he didn't come in and pull a Tebow and just stink from day one either. So is there something different? It's hard to tell. Um, now, I'll, I'll tell you what. If, if you had told me if they, that that Tim's would have seven home runs at the end of the year, I would be like, oh, okay. okay. That's good. Yeah, that's right. That's good comeback. Hey, yeah. he had a nice year, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So without seeing him live, it's very tough for me to say, oh, he's definitely changed this mechanically just because the angle's on TV. But I'm very curious. Um, yeah. Because it's also going to change, I think, the way to, major league teams have been very skeptical of hitters from Asia in general. But from Korea in particular, because the offensive numbers in Korea are insane, uh, right. have been the last couple of years. And does this open the door, one, for teams to spend a little more money on players coming from KBO or NPB? And two, does it open up an avenue for 4A type players, which is basically what he was, to go overseas for a couple of years and know that there's a path to come back? You go over there, you succeed, you can come back. And it's not like he got huge money, but he got a job that he was not yeah. going to get before he went over there for two years. That would also be um, particularly interesting, and I think a positive. I think anything that increases the flow of players back and forth between us, Korea, Japan, if it could get to that point with Cuba, it would be all to the good to have our players going there, to have their players coming here, um, and to recognize – for players to see that there's opportunity to go there and come back down the road. It's a positive for everyone. So even if he settles in and just is is just average the rest of the year – that's a pretty huge positive for him, for the Brewers, who'd have this undervalued asset now, and uh, or underpaid, and uh, and for Major League Baseball as a whole. Yeah, I agree with you, and I totally agree about – there are so many – you know, there are so many players at that 4A level, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, whatever they are um, – who need an opportunity to be seen. Yep. And it's not to say that they could come up and be, you know, whatever. You don't know. They could, I mean, the Thames the first time through obviously wasn't good enough. Um, but if there was that secondary route for them to mm-hmm. go overseas and then come back, uh, that would be great. It'd be great for baseball. Yes. It would definitely be great. Well, for they baseball. can't all play for Tampa Bay and Oakland. So some, sometimes they're going to have to go somewhere else. That is true. Yes. That is true. All right. So you're not. I, I assume, based on your on your sample size thing, you're not panicking about the Blue Jays, right? You're just not panicking. No, I'm not panicking. If you want to panic about the Blue Jays, it's just that they're getting hurt. And if yeah. any of the, you know, the more that these linger, then suddenly they're not the team on paper that we thought they were going to be. Like I'm not right. panicking about the Blue Jays. Not panicking about the Cardinals. That was the other big panic button thing. They're not. Yes. I don't think they're any different. Uh, it, it's even less true for the Cardinals. For the Blue Jays, you could at least sit there and argue, hey, there's a chance this team just looks really different for the next six weeks, say, than we thought it yeah. was going to be because Hap will be out and Donaldson's out for a bit and who else? Sanchez is hurt, right? They're, they're real, and what, you know, what if Liriano is just a disaster and now we're dipping right. into who's the, who is their sixth starter? I'm not even sure at this point. So yeah. you could panic. A le- I don't want to advise anyone to panic, but I could <laughs> at least make the panic argument. If I wanted to hot take this one, I just gave it to you. Whereas with yeah. the Cardinals, I look at the Cardinals, like that's the team we thought it was. I mean, they're exactly. still managed by a guy who's tactically challenged. But other than that, like, no, this is this is pretty much who I thought they were going to be. They just got a, you know, they've had a little bad luck out of the shoot in a stretch that we wouldn't notice in July. If they went three, right. what were they, three and seven, three and eight at one point? That's, that's, there's nothing fundamentally different about that team, physically, roster composition, health-wise, than there was two weeks ago. Yeah, I agree. I I think the Cardinals they'll be fine. The Blue Jays. The thing that's interesting to me about the Blue Jays is not the start. I mean, obviously the start you know is what magnifies it and yeah. allows you to see it. That team's old. Yeah, I mean they really got old. And and uh, look, if it's not this year, it's next year. And if it's not next year, it's the following year. But at some point, uh, that team's old. Yeah, I mean that's that's really that's how windows close, right? In baseball, it's yeah. like you suddenly age out and. Yeah, you, you look around, they're all 30. They're all 30 plus. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, look, I think that they'll prop, they're not going to play like this all year. But uh, but that team could be at a crossroads. I mean, I, I think that regardless of the start, that team could very well be at a crossroads. Yes, which would make them fascinating for all of us in July, non-Blue Jay fans, because they've got some assets 
that they should yeah. they should put out there. I mean, they should put them out there early. If they get to late June, it's it's not happening this year. Go get out there and try to take advantage of it. But uh, obviously, that would be depressing as heck for Blue Jays fans. And I don't think they should be at the point. That, you know, they should have looked at this year as we might squeeze another playoff spot out of this core. Right. They're good. Right. They're certainly good enough. If the back three of the rotation, which I think is weak, the Hap Estrada, you know, Homer prone again, his first start and the last start, he's fine. And if yeah. they can figure out whatever for the fifth spot, maybe it's not Lariano. You know, if those guys are just adequate, the first two, Stroman and Sanchez, are pretty damn good. So I, I, I mean, I had them making the playoffs as a wild card team, and I still think they could and should do that if healthy. That that's the big biggest caveat of all. Well, and that's age too. Right? Yes. I mean, that's another thing. That's oh, another absolutely. part of of age. Yeah, I I think they're interesting. I think the Royals in that same way. Not not that they're an interesting club per se. Uh, but I think that if the Royals get off to a bad start, uh, they start dealing. Yes. And, and, you know, and so that, that could be, and they've already, you know, I was looking at it today. I mean, that bullpen that, that was so key for them is still pitching great. Just not for them. Right. Anymore. That's right. I mean, you know, <laughs> kind of all over the league pitching really well for everybody in the league. But, but that's a team that I think could, could be selling pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know Pittsburgh after the the Marte news, uh, him getting suspended for so long. You know I don't know if that's not a team that that I mean they're they're so their pitching is so young that it's going to be a little while. But I mean I wonder if that's a team that would start trying to look toward next year if if things don't uh, don't uh, turn around a bit. I would say the in the Royal situation, what happens if they don't? They have if they don't trade. I'm sorry if they if they don't. They have yeah. four major names coming to free agency. And right. so that's an opportunity to sell for parts, to sell for, young, you know, hopefully for younger pieces. And I thought doing you know, Wade Davis for Jorge, Jorge one year of Wade Davis, who was coming off some you know injury concerns sure, for a sure. young cost controlled player with upside in Solaire. Perfect. Exactly what yeah. you need to do. Can exactly. they make a few deals like that? Do, what happens if they don't trade any of those four guys? If they say, we're they just going to hold them together, that they could be pretty bad for a while oh, yeah. because the farms, they played – they used the farm system exactly as you should use it. They yep. they used it to bolster the club. They got a pennant and a World Series. It's great. And now at this point, I had them ranked very near the bottom. They didn't have a top 100 prospect. The system is down. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this is a quick chance to, you know, you have a good draft in June and you trade those four guys in July. Suddenly the system looks a whole lot better. Well, I think that's huge for them. And look, they're going to have to make a decision. If that team is even remotely in contention, I think he keeps it together mm-hmm. and pays the price at the end of the year. And, and and paying the price in their case, I think you're right. It could be three years of bad baseball. Yeah. I mean, really rough baseball. Uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of jolting, you know, when when I looked at your, at your 100, to not have a single player in the top 100, especially when you're a team like the Royals that can't go out there and, and, and buy anything, you know. Right. Um, that's devastating, right? I mean, that's pretty devastating. It's brutal. I, you cannot succeed in any um, in any smaller market, low revenue environment without a productive farm system. I think it's really yeah. hurt the Rays since the World Series appearance that they had a couple of years that they had one year where they drafted seven times in the first seventy picks and got basically nothing out of it. Like that has not that draft has not produced anything anything more than a replacement level play big leaguer for them you you just can't you can't whiff on opportunities like that and the royals could be staring at one like that because they didn't pick high the years that they after obviously they were contending um they had they took a bunch of high risk high school pitchers high who just have not worked out as a group so far one of them got the yips which you can't predict but it doesn't you know at the end of the day you say i'm not blaming the scouting director for a bad pick but it is what it is you don't have that yeah. asset anymore. This is the chance where look, if Neil Huntington says that's still a good team, like you said, they're still young. They have they have a good farm system that's got guys close to the big leagues. But if he looks and says, you know, one year, one more year where we we just don't quite contend, but we'll be so much better off the next two years, and it's that much more money that we don't have to spend to fill holes. Okay, I get it. It's not maybe not such a good move for the Yankees or the Red Sox, but for the Pirates, who are always going to be payroll constrained, I could absolutely understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting, you you talk about you know top hundred best minor league systems. The rich seem to be getting richer, right? I mean, that seems mm-hmm. to be the the farm system for a while there. 
you know, Tampa they had had their wonderful run, uh, you know, with with a great uh, you know minor league system. Kansas City obviously had sort of a semi legendary minor, minor league system, yep. you know, that that is that is obviously worked out. Houston with a great great minor league system. Not that Houston is a small market, by the way, but they they play that game that card yeah. a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> But now it's what? Now it's the Dodgers. Boston obviously had the the ridiculous farm system that they've already basically shipped off to build this super team. The Yankee system is incredible. I mean, it's it's it have have the big money teams gotten smarter or is this just sort of a stretch that we're in right now? I think the big money teams have definitely gotten smarter. They've yeah. turned around and focused more on the value of creating, you know, essentially developing your own players so they're cost controlled. And uh, both those clubs, too, were very – were uh, well, the Yankees were early adopters on the analytics side. The Dodgers didn't want to know until Coletti was out, Friedman and Farhan came in. And then through – they may have the largest analytics department by personnel in baseball. Yeah. Uh, and so both those clubs have undergone a philosophical change and decided we're going to put money into these areas that we didn't put money into previously. And in the, in the Yankees' case, the two trades, the big trades last year – just refilled what was a good farm system and made it an unbelievable one. Unbelievable one, yeah. Yeah, in the Dodgers' case, they put some money into some international guys, and then you know, two years ago, they draft Walker Bueller, who was probably a top 10 pick, but then he gets hurt. They draft him low in the first round. Turns out he needs Tommy John. He comes back a year later, and he's literally hitting 100 miles an hour. Like that, <laughs> because you needed the luck. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that the Tampa Bay is like, we can't even get a competitive balance pick. And they find that guy. Like, how does that work out? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's very, very interesting. Cause I mean, obviously there is some luck involved and there is hitting and, and, and also you seem, one thing that I found really interesting is that minor league systems seem to get hot. I, I don't know what that is. I mean, that when the Royals had that run, where they built up the really really good system. Where I don't I don't know how many do they have in your top hundred in 2011, like nine or ten. They had a slow, um, yeah, it was a lot. Yeah, a bunch of them. It's just like they got hot. I mean, obviously the, a lot of those guys were high picks, but they also had guys like Salvador Perez and and uh, you know the Jordano Ventura, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, who were not huge prospects who built in and became you know big time prospects. I mean, it's it does feel like the Dodgers right now just can do no wrong except they still haven't won in 30 years i, I know mean, that's appalling it's insane. <laughs> it is. but you know it's, it is. to your point about systems possibly sort of getting hot you know i think there are two real factors behind it though one when the team decides we're building the farm system we're we are not compromising we're going to draft better we're going to get aggressive internationally which less true under the new system, but has been true the entire history of, I'm talking about like the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, you could just throw money at it. Really, you would just, all you would have to do is pay more money in penalties. So teams would decide to do that. We're going all in and we're building. Also, I think that uh, when teams do things like that, they start looking more at player development too. All right, let's make sure we've got better coaches down there in the Myers that we're not wasting assets. And the StatCast stuff I mentioned Uh, Towards the end, and in that chapter at the end where I interviewed some execs, too, about what they think might be coming next, the application of StatCast information to your own players, too, to finding, hey, this guy's got a really high spin rate curveball. Maybe he should throw it more. All right, let's see. This guy's changeup is getting tons of swings and misses. Let's go ask him, hey, what's your grip? All right, let's try to show some other guys who've got fringy changeups. Maybe we can alter your grips and and find coaches who who are obviously baseball men, but are conversant in the new language. Like that's a potentially huge opportunity. And some teams are doing that. I know the Dodgers and the Rays do stuff like that. They they don't talk about it a lot. It's going to be a quiet little revolution where certain teams are going to get good at it. And we're going to look one day and say, Hey, how'd they get so good? Well, they have all these second tier prospects who'd be first tier in other organizations who were, you know, maybe not high draft picks. They just turned out to be better than the industry thought. Well, that may turn out to be part of the explanation that they, they married the data and traditional coaching better than other clubs did. Well, I think that's absolutely, that's absolutely true. All right. So the book is smart baseball. We, it is, it is not actually out yet, right? What is the official like release date? April 25th, Tuesday. So six more days, I will officially be an author. April 25th, you're going to be an author. Are you going to do what, what all first time authors should do, which is go into either a bookstore or a library and say something to this effect. Yeah, I'm looking for 
some Shakespeare, a little uh, Fitzgerald, <laughs> and Keith Law. Do you have those three <laughs> in here? These are the ones I'm looking for. I want to do – I was joking with my family about doing some – when Molly Knight's book, uh, The Best Team Money Can Buy, came out a few years ago, she went into a sure. local bookstore and just like secretly signed a copy and just put it back <laughs> on the shelf. I'm like, that's hilarious. And of course my daughter looks at me like I'm crazy, like she always does. And my wife says, you're, you do that and you'll get thrown out of the store because they'll, <laughs> they'll think you're just defacing a book. I mean, can you picture me being like manhandled out of a store? Like, it's my book! <laughs> I I think the best part would be was they would just like you just bought that book right huh? you know right. You'd, you'd, you'd be walking out with your own book I signed it for myself I mean, that would not work as well you're my number one fan <laughs> be sure to do this this is and this is absolutely true every author does this I'm I'm just giving you always when you go into a bookstore find your book and then make sure to put it in a much more prominent oh, right. place. That's you, you, it's like ah, wherever these you know the 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 Hunger Games book, just get those yes. out of there and just put them right jo there. Joe Persnansky, <laughs> block that guy, right? Oh, you always turn yours out to the face of the front, right? Oh, hey, the end cap, take that. Yeah, you know, what? What the like you yeah. said, the Hunger Games? Get rid of that. No, no, no. Get rid Bill of that. Anything. No, he's he's out. Smart baseball to him. Yeah. By the way, he is out. He is out. I um, saw that. I know. It's, there you go. Yes, Keith. Can't thank you enough for joining me. This was great. We should not do this every five years. We should no, do we'll this do this frequently. much more often. Yes, that's a deal. Assuming Michael allows us to do it. Who cares? Why do you listen? To he doesn't like pie, and he knows jack about board games. Can we talk about this? <laughs> that is, yeah, we neither one of us know anything about board no, games. Although so I will I say I his show's creation, The Cones of Dunshire, like I went to Gen Con last year, which is the board game convention in Indianapolis. I'm going going to go again this year. Like that's wow. a thing. That's a running thing now. Like that was a big hit <laughs> in the board game world. I got to tell you. So it's The Cones of Dunshire, the game he invented for his show, right. a real deal, but the actual games he plays, terrible. Suck. They suck. Yes. <laughs> yep. So, All right. For By the way, just since you're, since you're here and since you mentioned it, let's just say it real quick. For a... A novice game player who is just looking for a fun game, not one that's can't get into the to oh, the depths yeah, yeah. of it, but just a fun game for the family, for your friends, whatever you want. What would it be? I, if you have kids, I always recommend Ticket to Ride, which you can buy oh, anywhere. We, did. we bought Ticket to Ride. It's it great. Is good. It's good, and it's it is really really. Fun. It's five minutes to learn it, and then yeah. if you want something that's a little more for the. More for grown-ups, just in the sense that the play is a little more sophisticated, but there's one called Carcassonne. Again, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, anywhere, where it just rewards a little better gameplay, but it takes – there's no setup time. There's only a couple of rules. Like, I've played – my latest review was a game that the box literally weighed seven pounds. Like, that game is – it is the Cones of Dunshire come to life. And whatever, I review these. That's the job. And it's actually not a bad game. But it is, you know, what's the joke from McSweeney's, right? It's punishingly intricate. Uh, right. Yeah. So <laughs> this this was punishingly intricate. Carcassonne is one of those, like, you it's you break out all the tiles, you put them in a bag. Your turn, you just draw a tile and put it on the board. That's it. And then it's the where you place it and how you score. That's where the cleverness comes in. I always say that's my favorite game of all time because it, it has the perfect combination. It's, it's gets you thinking. The rules are very elegant. And you can teach anybody in five minutes. Wow, Carcassonne. All right, yep. so this this is this will be my next purchase, and I will uh, I'll have you back on very soon, and then we'll talk about Carcassonne. I'll fly down to Charlotte and teach you how to play it. I uh, that would be great. There we go. That would be great. It's a deal. You are always welcome. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yep, Keith. my pleasure.